This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by someone from across the network, a guide through some very mysterious and murky territories uh, that I'm glad to have at my side. It's Zachary Fruling. Hi, Zachary. How are you? Hi, Duncan. Thanks so much. It's been quite a long time since you and I have podcasted together. But in calling me a guide, are you calling me Virgil or are you calling me Beatrice? Or possibly Neelix. I mean, take it however you oh, like. Oh, Neelix. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of Neelix as a, as a type of Virgil character. Well, that was the thing that struck me. Uh, we, uh, we kind of spoiled for anyone listening what we're talking about, I think, if, if they're down with their, you know, 13th century uh, literature uh, or 14th century literature, possibly in this case. Anyway, we're talking about Dante because I know um, that you are someone who not only is very keen on Star Trek Voyager, you have your own Star Trek Voyager podcast here on the network, but also someone who is very keen on Dante because I think you did a Metatrex episode way back, probably this must be like three years ago or something uh, talking about Dante. I failed completely to go back and listen to that again. Uh, So uh, apologies, but I enjoyed it at the time. Uh, It was a very interesting topic and I just thought it'd be great to have you on to talk a little bit about uh, the Voyager episodes that kind of uh, reference Dante one way or another and how we can maybe look at how his works might relate to Voyager specifically, but also in some ways potentially to Star Trek more generally. I'm so excited to talk about Dante. It's something I've been excited about since I first encountered it back in high school, maybe even before high school. I think I read The Inferno and then uh, we were supposed to read The Divine Comedy in my senior year of high school. And for me, it's interesting because it delves into um, the mythological, it delves into um, sort of grand epic themes, it delves into philosophy and theology and its literature, and it's all interwoven with this romantic story about Beatrice from Dante's autobiographical life. So it's a very complex topic, well beyond the scope of anything we would talk about on Metatrex. He, he was writing almost the original, not quite crossover fiction, but, you know, there's almost the kind of Dante extended universe there, isn't there, insofar as you've got La Vita Nuova, which is all about this uh I'm going to say character Beatrice, because as I understand it, there's not very much evidence for whether this was a real person or not. But certainly as far as the the written works are concerned, Beatrice was this uh, woman that Dante was madly in love with, even though he'd 
as far as I can see, never exchanged any words with her or more than like a very brief kind of parting conversation, passing conversation. Um, but, uh, so she, she is the subject of his early book, uh, La Vita Nuova. And then also, as you say, plays a very key role, uh, in the divine comedy as well. So she's kind of a, a recurring character. Well, in a way, La Vita Nuova lays the groundwork for the Divine Comedy, and you can see some of the numerology that Dante develops in in uh, La Vita Nuova in his relationship with Beatrice, and he uh, inter- interweaving that with his with his own Christian theology and with the, what he did in the Divine Comedy. As I remember La Vita Nuova, and I didn't have time to reread the entire thing before we recorded, but Dante encounters Beatrice at three distinct periods in his life, nine years apart, nine years, 18 years, and 27 years. And the first time he becomes enamored with her when he's nine years old. And at age 18, she essentially rejects him. And then at uh, age 27, she dies. <laughs> and she becomes yeah. the basis for his, <laughs> his his poetic work. And I always took La Vita Nuova to be more autobiographical. And I'm not a Dante scholar. I'm not a historian. And I'm not a scholar of literature per se. I'm more of a philosopher. So I don't actually know this. You probably know more than I do. But I had always assumed this was largely autobiographical insofar as Dante comments on his poetry throughout La Vita Nuova. He basically says, here's a poem and now I'm going to explain what it means. And here's a poem and now I'm going to explain what it means throughout the entire La Vita Nuova. Um and then, like I said, that kind of lays the groundwork for some of the things he did with numbers and numerology in, in the Divine Comedy. Um it's an interesting question how to connect this to Star Trek. Um, you, we could always talk about some of the romances in Star Trek, but I think that kind of misses the point. As I was thinking about how to connect La Vita Nuova to Star Trek, it occurred to me that the clearest example of Beatrice inside Star Trek is actually the Enterprise for Captain Kirk. The Enterprise is Kirk's <laughs> Beatrice. Absolutely. And and the death of the Enterprise, you know, losing the Enterprise is almost the worst thing that can possibly happen. I mean, you, you're right. I, I, I just, since we're on the subject of, of, of what we know about Beatrice, I mean, I, I haven't gone and researched this in great detail, I'm afraid. I don't know a huge amount about Dante's life. But in on the first page of my copy of La Vita Nuova, there is a biographical note, and it includes the sentence, of Beatrice, the love of Dante's life and subject of the Vita Nuova, not much can be verified. So I think maybe that's the answer. <laughs> she did not. I mean, it's basically, ironically, it's only because of Dante, uh, who, you know, she probably, uh, by the sounds of it, was probably barely even aware of that she has gone down uh, in literary history one way or another. And of course, like many characters in Star Trek, she appears in one book, uh, dies tragically, and yet then comes back from the dead. Well, she doesn't come back from the dead, but, you know, comes back in a second, you know, just when you thought we've heard the last of this character, here she is again in the Divine Comedy, which, of course, takes place, uh, you know, in the afterlife, essentially. So she is able to put in quite a significant appearance. I was thinking, you know, should we have had a spoiler warning on this that, um, you know, sorry, this, this character dies tragically? Because I actually... Uh, reading La Vita Nuova first was quite shocked when she died. I was slightly, I don't know, I don't know how I hadn't absorbed that this was a key part of the story, but I actually uh, was not expecting it at all. I thought this was all going to be about this lovely romantic story. And then suddenly she's dead about two thirds of the way through. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. This was a, this was a funny turn. I think maybe we can say that uh, a, a book that was published more than 700 years ago uh, you, you know, <laughs> if you're tuning into a podcast on Dante, maybe you should have read it already. I don't know. But as I say, I hadn't read it until a couple of days ago. Um, but it is very interesting. Yes, she is this uh, very idealised character. I suppose for me, the fact that she's so idealised to 
to be honest, for me, a slightly ridiculous extent in certainly in La Vita Nuova, I actually found it much harder to go along with in some ways that book than the Divine Comedy. And I think part of it is because Dante is just so obsessionally devoted to this woman who he barely knows. There's something slightly strange about it. And and also at some points it feels like it's it's slightly artificial. It's slightly kind of constructed because um he says that, that I think the point that she rejects him is because he's been giving attention to other women. And he sort of he always has some reason he sort of says, Oh well I was only giving attention to other women so that no one knew how much I love Beatrice. And he always has these like these shield ladies he calls them who are like the the women that he has these sort of phony uh relationships with almost so that people don't realize how in love he is with Beatrice and you kind of think you know really this sounds like quite a convenient uh way of of retelling this story when the other person is no longer around to dispute it you know it almost sounds like the seducer's diary by Kierkegaard right okay okay in that sense but 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 the fact that there's all this kind of numerology and so on as well it sort of makes it feel like it it has been very artfully constructed and he is doing something I think quite interesting as a sort of piece of literature you know he's taking these poems that he's supposedly written at various points over the previous years and he's kind of knitting them into one into one book i mean just on the most kind of basic uh prosaic level i suppose we should say the the reason we're looking at these two uh works by dante and voyager is that they both crop up in in two episodes of voyager la vita nuova uh at the very very end of the episode latent witness um which is the episode when the doctor is going through this kind of um crisis we discover that he had this crisis i think about a year and a half before uh when he had to in a kind of triage situation choose which of two patients to save and he saved harry kim as opposed to this random kind of red shirt who we've never seen on the show before but but we're supposed to believe is is really you know a great friend to everyone and, and a lovely woman and so on um and so in the final scene of that episode Janeway comes in to visit him because they're doing uh I mean the doctor is kind of like someone who's suffered a breakdown basically and, and his friends are all taking turns to sit with him and just kind of um help him get through it and Janeway has bought has brought a book with her which is a copy of this book La Vita Nuova um and she's reading it. I have to say, she doesn't give the greatest uh, advert for it because she does fall asleep uh, midway through. <laughs> what a boring book. <laughs> through reading it. I know, exactly. And I have to say, I I, I didn't entirely blame her in some ways. I mean, I, I, I found it more of a challenge, as I say. I think possibly partly because I, I can imagine it might be more of a wonderful work of literature in Italian than it is in the, anyway in the translation I was reading. it. it I, I just felt like there was something kind of missing, whereas the Divine Comedy has a bit more plot. It's got more characterization. It's got more sort of vivid, uh, descriptions. It's, it's got a lot more that translates very easily ac- across languages. But anyway, and Janeway has this line to the doctor. She says, I'm reading this, um, and it's relevant to your situation. And then at the very end of the episode, the doctor gives a fairly free, uh, translation of the first, um, sentence really of, of La Vita Nuova. And I'm kind of curious to know what you think because, I think it's interesting, on the one hand, it's interesting that the writers of Voyager chose to put this poem in Janeway's hands to say that this is what she's doing in her downtime. And then to say so specifically, this is relevant to the Doctor. And I actually think it's slightly unclear in what way is it relevant? What is Janeway thinking exactly when she says that? Uh, You you know, if we're to sort of, because the the episode kind of ends, it doesn't really ever answer exactly what is the link between this, um, this work of it's a mixture of poetry and prose, but she calls it a poem. Uh, and the doctor's kind of sort of mental 
psychological, moral, ethical crisis. Um, I'm kind of curious, what, do, do you have a kind of interpretation of what she means by that? Or is it a bit of a fudge on the part of the Voyager writers? I don't. I, I actually think this is a bit of a fudge. Um, it always struck me that that line from La Vita Nuova, you know, here begins a new life, is really tacked on. It, And I see what they're doing with Janeway and Dante. Janeway is stuck in the Delta Quadrant. She blames herself. She is very much like Dante at the beginning of the Divine Comedy. She's stuck in a dark wood in a way, and she needs, you know, a, a guide home in a, in a way. Maybe that's Neelix. I never thought of that. That's interesting. Um, and of course, they, they keep referring back to Dante. We know, um, Janeway was given a copy of the Divine Comedy by her fiance. So it's something that's emotionally relevant to her. So, uh, in that episode in particular, Latent Image, it feels to me like the Doctor is more um, in line with Dante at the beginning of the Divine Comedy. He's also stuck in a dark wood in some way. Uh, I, so I, I don't really know why they chose to go with La Vita Nuova instead of something from the Divine Comedy itself. I think the connection to what's going on in the Doctor would be a lot clearer if it were if it were something like the beginning of the Inferno. Um Best I can figure is that they just liked the line. <laughs> it was an inspirational <laughs> sounding line and it was Dante and they've been building this, this Dante theme with Janeway. So they went with that line. But uh, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's a bit of a fudge and it's, it's kind of an ad hoc addition into what's going on with the doctor. Um, I think the connection with Dante in the broad sense is clear. The doctor is having a moral crisis. He needs some guidance, needs to rediscover himself. Um, Maybe Janeway is like Beatrice to the doctor, but that seems like a really odd connection to me. I don't, I don't, I, w I would really have to force that connection, I think, to make that hold up. Or I suppose you could say that the, the fact that La Vita Nuova is partly about Dante dealing with the death of this idealized woman. Oh, maybe there's be. something in mm -hmm. that. Although really the story with the doctor kind of hinges on the fact that although everyone thinks she's great, he, you know, he says, I chose my friend. Harry is a friend of his and she is just it's kind of essentially a patient. So I'm not sure that that quite makes sense. I mean, I, I have to say my, my sort of feeling is it's a bit of a fudge. It's interesting to hear you say, you know, why didn't they go for the Divine Comedy first? And, I was, and, th and that makes perfect sense because if you think of Dante, that is the work that is the, the one that springs to mind, if you know what I mean. That's the kind of classic of world literature that the, 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 the greatest Italian work of literature, as many people would claim. And yet they don't do that. And they don't mention, I mean, w when you say, yes, she, she says in another episode that um, Mark gave her a copy of the Divine Comedy as an engagement gift, but that is that comes a season or so later, I think. That's true. Um, that's so, right. this, so this is the first time that they've made this link between Janeway and Dante. The only thing that occurred to me is that they've made a link already between Janeway and Leonardo da Vinci, who, of course, you, you know, was significantly later. But again, this kind of Italian uh, Renaissance, you know, the kind of Renaissance figure, I suppose. And Dante is connected at least to what's known as the the early Italian Renaissance insofar, you know, which is some period uh, beforehand, you know, we might think of him as a kind of medieval writer, but there's something about, I think, the way that he writes that he's seen as kind of anticipating almost this kind of cultural uh, shift in a sense. So, so maybe there's a sort of link there that we've associated Janeway with these kind of um, Italian Renaissance men who have a kind of, I mean, I was going to say humanistic. It seems wrong to call Dante humanistic in that sense, because obviously he's so interested in religion and Christian, you know, he's a very Christian writer in a sense, but that there is something about his kind of worldview that is quite, um, I mean, it has 
Star Trek values in it. It's quite compassionate. It's quite kind of, um, you, you can sort of see a, a link there. It, it just made me wonder, is, is that partly what's going on that we've got this kind of association somehow, whether consciously or unconsciously between Janeway as this woman of the future and this kind of ancient earth history at this moment of change and this moment of kind of um, new ideas and new approaches and new kind of these sort of trailblazers in a way that, that somehow she's linked to them. Well, I think there's a couple of things you, you can't really understand. I think the fullness of the divine comedy without understanding the role Beatrice plays in Dante's life, which you really only get from La Vita Nuova within the divine comedy. Dante is guided by two different figures. He's first guided by Virgil through through hell, through the inferno, into some portion of the way up into purgatory. And at some point, Beatrice takes over as his guide from th- to the rest through the rest of purgatory into into paradise. You know, a standard interpretation of of Dante and his use of these two characters. And again, it's it's interesting to discuss whether this is the right interpretation. But Virgil, in some sense, symbolizes human reason for Dante. You know, rationality gets him through his troubles in the Inferno, gets him part of the way up through Purgatory. But at some point, another a shade, another character, uh, another. Um, uh, connotation has to take over. And Beatrice symbolizes for him, which is clear, I think, in La Vita Nuova, symbolizes divine love. So, if, you know, it's romantic love in La Vita Nuova, but at some point there's this shift that takes place in his mind where Beatrice becomes not only the symbol of earthly romantic love, but the symbol of divine love, you know, sent from the divine to guide him the rest of the way to, to paradise. Um, so, yeah, clearly Dante's on this cusp of the Renaissance, even though he has this largely theological world view, but the Renaissance is you know, about to burst forth. <laughs> and I think that's clear in his, uh, in his uh, juxtaposition of these two characters in the Divine Comedy. You know, like any theological or religious person would have to do, they have to ask what's the relationship between the divine and the human or between, um, you know, divine love or human reason, you know, especially as it relates to salvation and the Christian worldview. And yeah, I think Dante's answer is clear that human reason gets you part of the way, but at some point divine love has to take over and that's the role Beatrice plays. How does that relate to Janeway? Um, Definitely Janeway is lost. <laughs> um, she needs a guide, and either an explicit guide or I think just uh, a metaphorical guide back back home. She feels largely responsible. But I, I, I don't feel the connection to La Vita Nuova other than the fact that, you know, it's it has these romantic connotations for her because the Divine Comedy was given to her by her, her, her fiancé, Mark. Uh, I really struggle to make the connection with La Vita Nuova, but I, I'm really on to something. I feel like I'm on to something with this notion that the Enterprise is Beatrice for Kirk because the, 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 the biographical story kind of holds, right? Kirk, you know, encounters the Enterprise, becomes enamored by the Enterprise, loses the Enterprise maybe not rejection but you know at a certain point at a certain point he loses the enterprise regains the enterprise and then only to lose the enterprise again when the enterprise is destroyed i love this idea that maybe maybe kirk is sitting later in life before star trek generations is sitting there writing love poetry to the enterprise <laughs> n- narrating it as he goes that's what he's doing in that kind of log cabin <laughs> Ca- captain With Antonio. Log. here comes another horse, poem yeah. about the enterprise <laughs> Um, well, I suppose it, I mean, we don't, I don't think 
Levita Nuova necessarily has to relate to Janeway personally. Though, though I was thinking in some ways when you say about, you know, the idea of Virgil kind of handing over to Beatrice, it is almost, I mean, it did strike me when I was looking at the Divine Comedy that Neelix is the character that springs to mind because he is very much, you know, he's the local, he's the mm-hmm. one who knows the territory, he is the guide. And then he reaches a point just like Virgil, where Virgil sort of says, I can't go any further than this. Uh, I, you know, I don't, this is as far as I can get to. Uh, and he sort of has to pass him over because his sort of geographical knowledge has run out. And you do get that with Neelix. I suppose with Voyager, in a, in odd way, you could say there's almost a link between the point where Neelix's sort of Delta Quadrant knowledge dies out. Yeah. And then Seven of Nine turns up almost immediately. And you could I was say, just I mean, I'm, I, I'm not to get into the whole strange world of Janeway Seven shippers and so on. Um, and I don't think there's any sense really in which Seven of Nine is kind of leading Captain Janeway towards the Alpha Quadrant. But obviously Seven of Nine has qualities in common with Beatrice, I suppose, as this slightly um, idealised, feminised, uh, slightly impossible woman, if you know what I mean. There is something of that. And obviously the Doctor, of course, as we find out at some point, uh, is secretly in love with her, uh, just as Dante is secretly in love with Beatrice. So, you know, I don't know, who knows, maybe there's some kind of a some kind of a link there. And certainly in the episode, Latent Image, it's Seven who plays the kind of key role of actually changing uh, Janeway's mind. So, you know, who knows? Maybe that was on someone's, you know, maybe if only on Brandon Braga's mind or, or whoever it was at the time. Well, I don't that, you know. know. We, we, Jerry Ryan had credit here. <laughs> Possibly. I, I mean, I think, yeah, to be honest, I think a big part of it is really uh, that the line at the end kind of works it's one of these things where actually it maybe works better if you don't know the source material uh because you assume it's more applicable than it actually is i mean captain (laughs) jamie has said this is relevant to your situation most people are going to say oh yeah sure she clearly knows what she's talking about and then the doctor has this line at the end which is quite um evocative and and powerful and interesting and it ends on this idea of uh, a moment in someone's life where you, you know here begins a new life where this is a kind of um uh, a, a new starting point and the idea of, of these chapters in life and the, and, the, and the memory. And I suppose the whole episode is about the Doctor's memories and kind of reincorporating these memories of the past and so on. Um, and I think in some ways that line allows what has become quite a bleak episode. And it always strikes me, it's very strange, at the end of this episode, other than him reading this one line of Dante, uh, we basically leave the Doctor at the end of this episode in the midst of a pretty serious mental breakdown, basically, with no very clear indication that he's going to come out of it, because last time around he didn't. And yet, of course, next week, uh, you, you know, he's, he's going to be back to normal yeah. and everything's fine. But so, <laughs> like so I think that line, through. exactly. Well, yeah, of course, there's the kind of, but the reset button here is not even in the episode. The reset button is is just kind of somewhere in between, which is it's kind of strange that the episode ends on a kind of almost a cliffhanger, you could say in some ways. Uh, but it's kind of, understood as not being a cliffhanger because he has this moment where he reads this you know seven well, i was gonna say 700 more thousand year old poem for him uh or uh, it's a piece of prose i think that that section that he reads um thousand year old book for him and seems to take something from it and i suppose just that idea of here begins a new life kind of sets up the idea okay the doctor is integrating these memories somehow he's going to be able to kind of start moving forward it, it sort of sounds hopeful in a kind of weird way. Um, there is also an interesting question that I could not find that the, as I say, what the doctor says is quite a loose translation. It's not, as I understand it, what Dante wrote. And so the Voyager writers have 
as far as I can see, paraphrase that quote. The difficulty is when you go online and you search for that quote, you get lots of people attributing it to Dante and lots of people attributing it to Voyager. And it's slightly unclear. Is If there's a, a loose translation of Dante that the Doctor is actually quoting from there, then that's one thing. But I would like to know if any if any Dante experts are listening to this podcast and can identify that, I'd love to know because I suspect that the Voyager writers just essentially rewrote this line to make it sound better and to make it sound more relevant to the to the episode they were writing. Um and now if you look online, it's actually very hard to find if it, has anyone actually translated Dante in that way or not? Is this just kind of a fake um version or, or does star trek take place in a parallel universe where dante wrote a slightly different version of la vita nuova i don't know i'd love to say i knew the answer uh, i've never actually tried to read it in the italian although i probably could i took latin enough where i could probably muddle my way through the italian if i had to but i've never taken the time to do it well it's the fact that um i suppose part of it is that there's this line that the doctor says that something about the the day that i first met you and i don't think that is in the original, as far as I I mean, I've only got an English translation in front of me, unfortunately. And and what it says here is that this is how, the, the, this is uh, Mark Musa's translation. Uh, it says, in that part of the book of my memory before which there would be little to read is found a chapter heading which says, here begins a new life. The doctor's version is much more kind of, um, I don't have it in front of me, unfortunately, but it's much more kind of elaborate sounding in some ways, isn't it? So in the book, which is my memory on the first page of the chapter, which is the day when I first met you, I think that's about right. Anyway, appear the words here, begins a new life, something like that. So the, the, the kind of basic idea is there and most of the kind of words are there, but this idea of the day when I first met you, as far as I can see, is not in Dante's uh, work. And he doesn't uh, La Vita Nuova is not addressed to Beatrice. It's, um, no, no. you know, it's written to, to a, a reader uh, about Beatrice, if you know what I mean. So it's strange that someone would interpolate this idea of, of it being written to her, except that I suppose that makes it sound more romantic and it makes it sound more kind of personal somehow. Whereas actually on the face of it, it's a slightly impersonal statement in a way and, and i suppose that it doesn't really that sentence on its own doesn't really tell you very much until you go on and kind of read the rest of the book and find out what's going on in it so i think it's interesting we have two competing interpretations of la vita nuova and maybe the divine comedy as it relates to voyager on the one hand janeway could be analogous to dante where neelix begins as the virgil figure he's the guide through the first half of um Voyager's journey. At a certain point, Neelix's knowledge of the Delta Quadrant fades away and maybe Seven of Nine becomes Beatrice for Janeway in some non-romantic except for the Janeway Seven shipper perspective that's out there. Uh, so that's one interpretation. The other interpretation might be that Doctor, the Doctor is the, the Dante character where in some sense Janeway is the symbol of reason for him, especially in this episode. Right. She, she's the one who talks him off the cliff, so to speak. Um, but at a certain point, seven of nine becomes the embodiment of love for the doctor. So in both cases, seven of nine is the Beatrice character for either for Janeway or for the doctor. I find that fascinating. And it would be interesting to know. I actually can't remember off the top of my head who wrote, um, the script for latent image, but I think this is at the time when Brandon Braga was kind of, um, on board with Voyager, right? And was dating Jerry Ryan. I think, uh, or certainly he went on to date Jerry Ryan. So there must have been some kind of um, something about Jerry Ryan anyway. It was, it, I, I think you can't, you almost can't put those two things together without noticing some kind of a parallel between 
the the way that Seven of Nine is represented by Voyager as much as by as much as how she's seen by any of the characters, but by Voyager the TV show, and how Beatrice is represented by Dante in some ways. Um, but it is. Uh, I, I don't think there's any, it's not one of those examples that you do get in Star Trek sometimes where there's a very sort of schematic, obvious, okay, we're, we're, we're doing this story and this person is playing this role and that person is playing that role. Like, for example, when, um, DS9 does Serrano de Bergerac, there's kind of certain roles in that story and they get kind of assigned to certain characters. Uh, I don't think that's what's really going on here, but it is interesting to think that, you know, someone has obviously decided to bring this, uh, book into the Voyager story to associate this with Captain Janeway. And, you know, who knows, maybe these kind of ideas are, are floating around at the, at the back of, of someone's head or not. But I do think it's also interesting, this question of translation, because as I say, uh, I mean, of, of course, maybe that translation that Janeway's reading from is, you know, a, a Vulcan translator's effort, to, <laughs> you know, or whoever. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, like in Star Trek, you always have, you know, this, these kind of imagined, uh, our future but their past I, I, kind I'd of like to moments. Read a Vul- Maybe I'd there's... like to read a Vulcan translation of Italian love poetry. You know? Exactly, exactly. Well, although you could say, I mean, they say Shakespeare's best in the original Klingon. I can imagine the Klingons would have done a pretty good job of the Inferno. That would be kind of right Oh, yeah, with Stovacor right, you know? and everything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But there is this kind of interesting question about translation, I think. Um, and it did cross my mind, you know, what is Janeway reading? I mean, we sort of assume she's reading in English, but maybe not. Maybe, I mean, A, maybe she reads Italian, because uh, she seems quite into these Italian stories. Uh, B, is there a way, you know, obviously with spoken language in Star Trek, everything is kind of simultaneously translated by the universal translator, but what does that do to written language? Um, and she, interestingly, she's not reading it off a pad, because if she was reading it off a pad, you could imagine there could be some kind of, uh, like the UT could have some way of representing the original language and the and the translation somehow together uh, it looks like she's reading an old you know pretty old book basically that's been printed of it but I, I suppose we have to kind of assume she's reading in English but it did just strike me because because reading these two works this week uh La Vita Nuova on the one hand and the Divine Comedy on the other I have to confess I didn't get all the way through the Divine Comedy I read the Inferno and I listened to I listened to a rather good BBC radio adaptation of the whole thing. So I, I think I've got a kind of at least a sketchy outline in which David Warner um, plays Virgil. Fantastic, wonderful sort of laconic uh, Virgil. It, it was pretty good ad- adaptation anyway. But it did just sort of make me think how much of it is, you know, is there something that's lost in translation for me reading La Vita Nuova compared to someone who speaks Italian uh, who can read it in the original and kind of get the flavor of the language uh, more in those in those poems in particular um because also it's it's a work i mean i think both these works being composed in italian was quite a big statement at the time and that's one of the reasons that dante is seen as this kind of key cultural figure because he wasn't writing i mean he did he did write in latin to some extent but these really key works he was writing in italian and that was kind of considered uh, a pretty radical gesture in a way do you happen to have a favorite translation of the Divine Comedy? Uh, I can't speak as much about this with La Vita Nuova. I've only read one version of it, and I, I, I don't even remember off the top of my head which which translator it was. But for the Divine Comedy, I love the John Chiardi translation. I don't know if you, which one which one you read, but I find that one captures the kind of poetic sense better than a lot of the English translations I've read. Um, even if it takes a quite a bit of license with the the literal translation, it tries to capture kind of this weird defective rhymes you get in you get in uh italian um 
And uh, it has this kind of uh, th- three line stanza approach where one stanza feeds into the next and just has this movement through the entire thing. Um, that's the only one I've, I have a hard time getting through other translations. I think it loses some of the some of the momentum that I that I find in that first translation I ever read. And I actually have a confession to make. I have a really hard time getting all the way through the Divine Comedy. I find the Inferno riveting and part of Purgatorio riveting. And then at some point it just goes, OK, it just drags on and on and on once we get into into the Paradiso. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? And I think, and that's one reason why, you know, the Inferno is much more popular, I'd say, and much better known. And often, I mean, if you look at the, the translations that are out there, I mean, it is an interesting case because I think unlike La Vita Nuova, which is a bit, you, you know, is is not the, the great work of world literature or, or whatever, Um the the divine comedy is translated over and over again uh great poets will translate it so you do get these kind of interesting interpretations and translations um and so on i mean there's a translation i think uh that longfellow did for example yeah mm-hmm. you know which is going to be very different to a modern translation or to a you know i can't remember the name of the translator of the edition i read but it felt quite modern it felt quite um it felt poetic, but at the same time had a kind of slightly earthy modern mm-hmm. uh, sensibility. It, it wasn't kind of frilly, old-fashioned poetry. Do you know what I mean? It felt it felt like a, quite sort of up to date and kind of immediate, uh, which I liked. It sort of uh, it it worked well for me, and it 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 felt like it captured something. I don't know whether it captured the kind of style or the the kind of texture of the original exactly, but it 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 certainly seemed to fit the story well and it fit the kind of um descriptions because that's part of what's so powerful about this uh poem i think and, and one reason as i say the inferno is probably the most successful of the three parts is these kind of horrific descriptions of you know it's almost at times it's almost like a kind of hieronymus bosch painting of this kind of vision of uh these tortures being meted out to people this kind of you know i was gonna say hellish environment i mean literally it's hell so that's that's what it's going to be like and it's very on star trek is the weird thing that kind of um that vision of of this kind of depraved hideous uh afterlife of course you could say the paradiso is more is that is more star trek that's the kind of utopian uh slightly but arguably slightly bland and maybe that's part of the problem and why it becomes slightly less gripping because it doesn't have that kind of dark gnarly texture it doesn't have these kind of constant horrors being thrown in your face i mean the inferno has a lot more um sort of inherent drama almost because it's all so intense and kind of um shocking and it's easy to forget how much is political commentary. He basically takes all the corrupt politicians and everyone he disagreed with about anything and put them in various circles of hell. So it's, it's political commentary through and through. And so much of the politics of the day is lost on us unless you have, you know, translators footnotes or historians notes along with it. It's, it's, it's easy to gloss over all of the actual, um, historical references there are. Um, you know, I don't know. I, as I think about this, I kind of go, how does this relate to Star Trek? We do get corrupt politicians in Star Trek, right? We get bad morals left and right. <laughs> you know, politics in Star Trek is actually dirty business, you know, especially in Deep Space Nine, um, you know, to some extent of the next generation, but especially in Deep Space Nine and, and other iterations of Star Trek. It makes me think, like, what would, if Dante were writing about Star Trek and that was his source material, wh- where would he put all of the different bad morals and in, in which circle of hell? It, overall, in the Inferno, overall in the inferno you get basically a theory of i would call it retributive justice you know as you as you sinned you know to use the christian vernacular 
um, that's the way you're punished in hell, right? So it, it's very retributive. You know, if you were, um, I, I, boy, I'm struggling right now to think of an example from the inferno, but you know, if you were, um, slothful, then you're stuck to the ground and you're moving in slow motion, right? You know, that the, the way you were in, in, in real life is how you are, um, punished inside, inside hell and in, in Dante's vision until you get into the, into the purgatorio and, and paradiso. Um, it is very anti Star Trek. Star Trek is much more optimistic about human nature, I think, than, um, than, than Dante is, at least in the Inferno. But, uh, and I, I don't see much in the way of retributive justice inside, inside Star Trek. You know, is there any attempt to punish people based on how they, how bad they mess up inside the Federation? Or I, I don't know. Do, I, do alien species in Star Trek function this way? Is there a good analogy with this overall vision of, of punishment and retribution inside Star Trek? I, I couldn't think of one. Not that really strikes me. I mean, it, it reminds me in some ways of almost, I don't know if you've read any of the books of Ian M. Banks, for example, who wrote a, a series of science fiction novels, um, which are often linked to Star Trek insofar as they do have this society, which is a kind of fairly utopian, uh, you know, sort of post-capitalist, post-scarcity uh a very laid back kind of benign society but then they always seem to be encountering these kind of other more backward kind of nasty scary freaky societies which are sort of more like kind of the earth of history i suppose where there is often that kind of i suppose sort of cruelty and um suffering and that kind of um you know, almost sort of medieval mindset. I suppose that's part of it. When we th say, you know, is Dante this kind of medieval poet or this kind of early Renaissance poet, there is something quite medieval about the descriptions of torture and misery uh, and all of that stuff that's kind of going on there. Um, I mean, it's interesting you say, is the Paradiso more kind of Star Trek? One way of looking at it might be, I mean, you say that Janeway's in the dark wood at the start of, uh, or, or th throughout Voyage. I mean, that, that, that basically the first line of the Divine Comedy, the first line of the Inferno, uh, is this line, um, where Dante says he was, um, midway, I'm paraphrasing again, but midway through the journey of my life, uh, I found myself in a dark wood. So that's about right, isn't it? And, and, and I couldn't see the way forward. No, no way, no way. You go, I'm giving my own translation just because I don't have the book in front of me, but you, you know, something along those lines, basically at, at, at about the age, I guess sort of in his mid thirties, maybe it seems to be how it's generally understood. Thirties or forties midway point. through the journey. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, and those of us, those of us who are around that age can probably identify one way or another with, the, you know, I've certainly had moments where I've felt like I was in a bit of a dark wood, but, and I think you could say, you know, that's Janeway. You could say, certainly say in the episode night where we see Janeway, um, dwelling on her past mistakes, her, or she sees it, the fact that she's got herself into this situation, struggling to literally see a way out of it in that episode. There's this kind of spiritual sense. But equally, I mean, Voyager is transported to a dark wood, the Delta Quadrant. And the Delta Quadrant is literally, you, you know, the place that is not... And maybe the show never quite sells us on this. Maybe the show never quite makes the Delta Quadrant seem as dark and scary and freaky and alien as it should have done. But at least on paper, there's this sense that okay, the Alpha Quadrant, we know... That's where paradise is. I mean, literally, Earth is described in DS9 as paradise, isn't it? Uh, the Delta Quadrant is like the opposite. It's all chaos. It's all gangs. It's all kind of uh, brutal and, and shocking and scary. So maybe there is that sort of sense. Um, there, there is that kind of sense of, of that. And the fact that it's an unknown quantity, almost in a very alien place, that is sort of what Dante is talking about in some ways in that opening. You, you know, he, he, he finds himself suddenly in this kind of alien place. And whether that means spiritually because he's in a bad 
state of mind, you, you, you know, really, uh, and you read the whole thing as kind of allegorical, whether it means, you know, literally he's kind of transported into this wood where there are lions and wolves and, and kind of monsters everywhere. Yeah, we, all of which are met- all of which are symbolic and metaphorical. Yeah. All of which are metaphorical, but equally you could say, you know, in Voyager, that is almost uh, with the Kazon and the Vidians and all this sort of stuff in the early period of Voyager, they're kind of, um, is that sense of these threats from all sides and so on. And the fact that they're in this place that they aren't familiar with. Um, when I was doing some research on this, I came across this um, phrase in an article about the Divine Comedy. And it said, and, and this tied in almost to what you were saying about giving up on the Paradiso at one point, it described it as an ultra mundane journey. And I thought that's a very strange expression. I haven't heard that one before because it makes it sound like it's going to be something really tedious and boring, right? It doesn't mean that at all. It, this is ultra mundane in the sense of outside of the world, an otherworldly journey. And when I looked up that word, the, the gloss for it is existing outside the known world, the solar system or the universe. And that, I suppose, is exactly what Voyager is, is it's a Star Trek story that exists outside of the known universe, uh, more so than any other. I mean, you could say all of Star Trek is that in that they're exploring and, you know, finding strange new worlds. If they're and on so the on. frontier. Yeah. But exactly, if they're on the frontier. But literally, Voyager is the opposite because they're thrown into this uh, ultra mundane situation this kind of alien situation and then the journey is kind of to get back and that is of course the journey that you see in the divine comedy is from starting off in the dark wood and then going through hell then purgatory then paradise that's kind of the journey back to life for dante in a way it has to go in that direction it's also just uh, it's almost an aristotelian summary of good drama right drama has struggle and then it has catharsis and you know some sort of resolution at the end and and you know the overall structure of the divine comedy has something like that aristotelian notion of, of drama i guess the the connection the reason i find it interesting is i've had periods of my life like that you probably have too and anyone who's you know deeper than a gnat probably has had a period of life where they feel like they're in a dark wood and they have to get out of it in some way uh, so for, for me, I look at, at at the Divine Comedy as it relates to Star Trek, and I start going down the, the character list, like who in Star Trek is has mostly been in the dark wood at some point or another. I came up with a list, like who are who are the Dante characters who are who are alone in a dark wood at some point in Star Trek. Um, I came up with Kirk inside Star Trek Two. You know, he feels lost. He's the he's not captain of the enterprise anymore he feels old he's midway through the journey he's middle-aged in star trek 2 and khan of course has a copy of the inferno on his bookshelf yeah exactly it's an explicit connection and and i suppose we might more associate that with khan living in hell on that planet you know the fact that his his heaven has been turned into hell but i think star trek 2 is a film that definitely you know leans on that because you also of course get the whole genesis concept which is basically eden again mm-hmm. um and and that is in the divine comedy it's in eden that um beatrice kind of makes her appearance and kind of takes over at that point in the garden of eden and you do have that whole thing in star trek 2 with you know Maybe it's Carol Marcus in that instance in the Garden of Eden. Well, maybe she she is she the Beatrice character. She she really is um, for Kirk in some sense. I mean she, I mean she may not be the symbol of divine love. I'm not sure if Kirk really has that. Like I said, other than the Enterprise, <laughs> we know Enterprise is, uh, the Enterprise is Kirk's first love. But um, but she does kind of get him out of his dark wood in a way. You know, she makes him see things in a different way when they're when they're talking um, in that little conversation. Uh, before they enter the Genesis cave, when, you know, when the rest of the crew leaves to go look at the Genesis cave and she and Kirk are sitting there, I think that's kind of a turning point for Kirk in the, in the, in the film. 
Um, so I came up with Kirk, uh, Janeway, of course. I'm going to go down this list. Let me know which of the, these you think is most compelling and which ones you find wildly off base. I would say Michael Burnham is a plausible Dante character. Um, the Doctor, we talked about. Uh, Chief O'Brien in Hard Time in Deep Space Nine in that, in that uh, episode when he remembers 20 years of, of being in prison, which all happened in his, in his mind. Um, Delana also in Voyager in Extreme Risk. You know, she's really lost her way. Um, also, it's interesting that Chakotay comes to her rescue in, in a very, um, uh, Virgil kind of way. And especially that Chakotay is the one who keeps bringing, bringing Dante up to Captain Janeway. <laughs> well, Chakotay is always in that, cast in that role, I think. There's that kind of, there are all those episodes where you, you usually get Chakotay kind of, bending down on his knees and kind of relating to someone and he is and he is the spiritual guide i mean he's literally a spiritual guide to janeway early on with her animal uh oh yeah you know experience i didn't think about Uh, that we get that episode uh with the doctor where he's the one um projections is that the the second season episode and he has this really kind of impassioned speech towards the end saying you know don't give up on your life you know uh he he does he does those speeches he does it for balana again you know he is sort of the go-to guy if you need a bit of uh, spiritual support, a bit of kind of bolstering. Uh, ironically, you don't go, he does the same for Neelix in Mortal Coil when Neelix is on the point of committing suicide. It's always, um, I mean, Chicote is like the kind of Samaritans of, of Voyager, I think. Anyone who's in that kind of real dark situation, it's him who wanders in and turns it around. Not ironically, their morale officer. It's, it's the first officer somehow who is able to make that kind of very, sort of human connection with people and, and encourage them to, I suppose, have hope and not not to despair, almost. It does seem almost like a kind of virtual character in that sense. It's interesting because uh, Robert Beltran wasn't happy with the way Chakotay was written. He thought he didn't have enough to do <laughs> dramatically, essentially. He's always saying, you know, yes, Captain, and, you know, screwing off the bridge. Um, and I think I think Voyager fans recognize, you know, his character didn't get the, the due that it deserves. But here, we're basically characterizing him as a, v- as a Virgil slash Beatrice character, you know, I mean, if he's up, if he's in company with Virgil and Beatrice, and that's the analogy we're making, they must have done something right with this character. <laughs> if only that they keep putting him in the same, virtually the same scene over and over yeah, again. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, so you know, they're like, yeah, okay, Robert, Robert can do that with his, you know, hands behind his back. How about Spock in the motion picture? He's he's really in a dark place at the beginning of the motion picture. You know, he's he's not able to obtain his state of culinar and. Um, you know, in a way, he becomes he becomes some combination of Virgil and Beatrice. Obviously, Virgil. If if Virgil symbolizes human reason, Spock has to be the Virgil character, right? He's the he's the, the logical character, but he helps guide Kirk back to the Enterprise. <laughs> you know, and, and before Spock and McCoy, it's and it's really before Spock comes on board. Before Spock comes back on board in the motion picture, Kirk feels really lost. Right, he doesn't feel at ease on the Enterprise. The Enterprise has changed around him. Spock isn't there. McCoy doesn't really want to be there. Um, you know, he he he's knocked Decker out of his out of his chair, and he keeps flubbing. You know, he causes the causes the. Um, uh, what do you call wormhole? You know, so things aren't going right for Kirk until Spock shows back up and things start to gel again. So, you know, Spock kind of plays this, this Virgil character for Kirk, I think. And if, and if Spock is Virgil, McCoy must be something like Beatrice. You know, it's this, the, the trifecta of Kirk and Spock and McCoy has to be Dante and, um, uh, Virgil and, and Beatrice to some sense, you know, Spock always saying, you know, here's, here's the logical and McCoy saying, you know, here's the emotional component of things. There's got to be some connection there. I'm not sure it's a very, very deep connection, but things don't really gel in that movie until Spock shows back up, I think. 
for Kirk. But Spock is lost at the beginning to their own loss at the beginning of the movie. That, you know, McCoy doesn't want to be back. You know, he's he's got his beard and his, you know, porn star medallion. <laughs> he doesn't want to be in Starfleet. He feels lost in some sense. Kirk definitely feels lost. Doesn't quite know how to function on the new Enterprise. Spock feels lost. He can't obtain Colinar. It's when they come together that everything starts to gel. So maybe they're all playing those roles for each other in some sense. I also came up with, with Captain Pike in the cage. You know, he feels really lost. You know, he's in a kind of moral dark place he's exhausted he's tired of the burden of command and you know he and he's um, literally uh plagued by a vision of hell at one point isn't he i mean he, he yeah, says that line exactly. the Telosian says oh a myth from your child you, you heard in childhood or whatever and that is uh, it, seemingly a depiction of like the fires of hell that's what pike is thinking of and obviously in discovery they play on this and uh say that you know his his father had some kind of religious background so he, he has more of a kind of um familiarity at least uh maybe sympathy towards kind of um christian religious belief and so on compared to other star trek characters that we've typically seen over the years they, they sort of kind of make sense of that but i mean that is something that is right there from the very beginning of star trek with that character there's that association of him you know burning in the fires of hell like that so can you think of any other plausible Dante characters in Star Trek, you know, in the sense of being lost in a dark wood at the beginning of the Divine Comedy. Well, it's interesting. I, I mean, I suppose it, it, depending on how broadly you take that, you you know, you could apply that to, you could probably apply it to all of the captains. And I think there is something about the kind of loneliness of command that ties into that. So, you know, Picard has sort of moments like that. I mean, particularly say after the best of both worlds, that kind of, um, you know, we, we, we see them all pushed one way or another into a kind of crisis situation. I mean, Cisco has that point after Dax has died and he kind of goes back home and he's kind of, he seems very mm-hmm. much lost and he actually needs a prophet to come and take him by the hand and kind of uh, very much in a kind of, well, not in a Beatrice like role because she's his mother, but, um, but very much in that kind of sense of this kind of otherworldly person to kind of guide him back to where he needs to be to get him back onto Deep Space Nine. Um, so, so you could, uh, certainly see that. I, I suppose Archer as well. You have the whole thing after the Zindi crisis similarly finds himself in a kind of dark place. But whether, whether there's something different between the dark wood as just a metaphor for, feeling kind of lost and a bit hopeless and like uh, you can't see the way out of your current predicament, which I think is absolutely what Janeway is going through in Night uh, and a sort of broader narrative um, thing where I think it is Voyager that is the series that kind of relates, you, you know, maybe it's not just so much Janeway is Dante uh, in Voyager, but Voyager is Voyager Dante in Voyager, if you're not Voyager <laughs> the ship, because that's, that's the situation they're all in. The whole ship is stuck in this uh, dark, uh, mysterious, scary situation. And are they going to be able to get back to the light? Are they going to be able to get back to paradise or not? But the other thing that struck me actually, funnily enough, is not so much, a Star Trek character that relates to Dante, but there's another character um, in the Divine Comedy who reminded me very much of some of the kind of Starfleet captains, and that's Ulysses. And Dante creates this very interesting story for Ulysses, which I don't think, and someone can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, I don't know that there is another source for this. I think this may actually be a story that he's kind of invented for him, or maybe it's a story that, that was known, but it's certainly not in... Uh, it's not in the Odyssey. You'll have to refresh my memory. I can't remember the passage that you're calling to mind. Well, he meets Ulysses, uh, who is Odysseus, basically by you know by the, by his other name, um, 
And the story that he tells is that as in, in old age, he gathered his crew, his old crew back together for one final mission. And it was a disaster and they all died. And, and basically, uh, there's this enormous guilt attached to him for feeling that, you know, very much as Kirk is kind of constantly doing <laughs> in the films, basically, that by getting these kind of old, you know, fuddy-duddy uh, guys back together who should be resting in retirement and not out, you, you know, in the galaxy, in their, in their ship or whatever. I think you just summarized Star Trek four through Star Trek six, Yeah. <laughs> and maybe in Star Trek Picard. Picard, again, absolutely. Although let's hope that it doesn't have as disastrous an impact as it did for Ulysses, because basically the way Dante tells it, you know, this is what Ulysses is being punished for, essentially, is giving bad counsel, is kind of uh, talking these old guys into this mission that really they had no place going on. They uh, you know, they should be kind of enjoying their retirement. Essentially, they should not be gallivanting out, you know, across the seas or in the case of Star Trek, uh, you know, across the galaxy in a starship. Um, those days should be behind them. And basically what happens is it's a complete disaster and I think they all die. And, and, and uh, Ulysses has this kind of great guilt for the fact that he talked them into this mission that really... Uh, none of them should have gone on in the first place. That very much, um, well, first of all, it seems like a very sort of Captain Kirk thing to do. And we do get that sense in the original series movies that he sort of keeps getting these, uh, you, you know. Get the band back together. Exactly. Yeah. His old crew, but literally his old crew by that point, uh, back together. Maybe we'll see that to some extent in, in Star Trek Picard as well. But also very much like Janeway in that episode, Night. Again, you know, a character who is kind of the captain who makes a call uh, on behalf of his crew, but then kind of regrets that decision and, and wonders, have I have I led my crew into a terrible situation? You know, just as Janeway is kind of thinking, have I stranded my crew in the Delta Quadrant, um, you know, without good cause almost and created a kind of terrible situation for them in that way? Well, the parallel to Ulysses or Odysseus is interesting because like Dante, almost more literally even though it's still mythology in in the Odyssey, the Iliad and the Odyssey, but mainly the Odyssey, I'm thinking Odysseus or Ulysses is on a journey, <laughs> 20 year journey home. So, um, you know, maybe that's a better connection um, in terms of, of plot structure and um, the overall storyline of Voyager than than Dante is. You know, I think I think of the Inferno and the Divine Comedy as largely metaphorical, maybe psychologically metaphorical, but. Um, the, the Odyssey is a literal journey home for Odysseus. <laughs> uh, I found an interesting translator's note um, from, from my copy of the Divine Comedy on Ulysses. So I'll go ahead and read it if you'll indulge me and you can see if, if this makes any sense or not. But it's a note on U Ulysses and is it Diomede? Is that the right way to pronounce Diomede? Ulysses and Diomede. They suffer here for their joint guilt in counseling and carrying out many stratagems which Dante considered evil. Though a narrator who is less passionately a partisan of the Trojans might have thought their actions justifiable methods of warfare. They are in one flame for their joint guilt, but the flame is divided, perhaps to symbolize the moral that men of evil must sooner or later come to a falling out, for there can be no lasting union except by virtue. Their first sin was the stratagem of the wooden horse, as a result of which Troy fell and Aeneas went forth to found the Roman line. The second evil occurred at Skyros. There Ulysses discovered Achilles in female disguise hidden by his mother Thetis so that he would not be taken off to the war. Didamia was in love with Achilles and had borne him a son. When Ulysses persuaded her lover to sail for Troy, she died of grief. The third count is Ulysses' theft of the sacred statue of Pallas from the Palladium. 
Upon the statue, it was believed, depended the fate of Troy. Its theft, therefore, would result in Troy's downfall. Well, certainly you could see from the point of view of, you know, someone who's on the side of Virgil uh, is probably not going to be all that keen on Ulysses one way or another. <laughs> but, you know, um, but that's that's very interesting. I'm a big fan of getting the band back together. Uh, I do this professionally. Anytime I can hire former co-workers and bring them back and get the band back together, I'm all about it. So, I, I you know, I, I appreciate it. At a certain point, is it too much? Like, you know, is it like, you know, old rock stars getting back together. Is it, is that awesome? Or is that, does it become pathetic at a certain point? I think you can ask that about Kirk and maybe Picard and Star Trek Picard. When do you call it quits? What's the right time to, to bow out and uh, realize that there is no more mission for you? Is that the equivalent? Is that the kind of slightly depressing cameo, the, the equivalent of, you know, Ulysses getting his, his whole crew into danger, uh, <laughs> kind of ruining what might have been? Cause that is always kind of the, the fear, isn't it? That's what, that's why, you know, famously DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy didn't want to be in Generations because they sort of felt they'd done their farewell and they they weren't sure that this was going to add anything to it. And, you know, is it always the right decision? It's an interesting existential question, like recognizing the facticity of your own current state, your age, your situation in life, your circumstances, whatever, which are to some extent externally defined and not modifiable. They just are what they are, right? On the other hand, you can always use your free will to go do something different. <laughs> you can go on another mission if you want to. You can get the band back together. You can fill in the blank. You know, life's still always full of possibilities, even when you're old. It's a really interesting, it's not a paradox, but it's an interesting juxtaposition of just the fact of the matter state of affairs and your power as a human being with free will to do what you want, getting the band back together or the crew back together or otherwise. Well, it's interesting you should mention free will as well, because I suppose that's a key part of it. And I think there is a discussion at some point um, in the Divine Comedy about the kind of the importance of free will and the, the fact that, you know, these people have made their own mistakes because so much of it is about kind of accepting punishment for your mistakes and accepting the kind of quite harsh, in some ways, retributive justice that's being kind of meted out. Um, and there is also this theme of kind of, you know, it's right there in the opening line of not being able to see the way ahead, of needing a guide. You know, the fact is that Dante needs a guide because he can't see his way out of the wood, let alone through hell, purgatory and, and paradise. There's nowhere he can see his way home without help. One of the things that kind of struck me is that when you get to the episode Shattered, which is the episode where we find out about this copy of the Divine Comedy, which Mark gave Catherine as an engagement gift, uh, which she then lent to Chakotay, because this is kind of the key thing is he says, oh, you, you lent me your copy. And she is very, she being the, the Janeway of, you know, whatever it is, six or seven years earlier, is very sceptical and kind of says, my fiance gave me that copy. There's no way I wouldn't lend it to anyone. Yeah. And especially not you, you know, Marquis Captain. Um, so it's, it's kind of, um, a moment where the, the fact that Chakotay convinces her that she would do that convinces her to trust him on some level because it suggests they have this very close relationship. And she then even says at a later point in that episode, you know, do we basically, are we an item? Uh, you know, because she's kind of intuited something about their relationship that she would give this engagement gift to him uh, to read. But then um, Chakotay says something which is kind of interesting, which is he says, I agree with Dante. This again, I'm paraphrasing. Sorry. He says, basically, I agree with Dante. If you can always see the road ahead of you, it's not worth the trip. Now, this is almost the opposite of saying we're in the Delta Quadrant. We need a guide. We need Neelix. We need someone to kind of tell us what's coming up. Actually, funnily enough, you know, thinking of, uh, Seven of Nine as taking over that Neelix role, she does take over that Neelix role because with the benefit of all her Borg knowledge, she is actually the one person on the ship who sometimes does know what they're walking into in the last seasons of Voyager, you know, because she'll say, oh, this is species, blah, 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 blah. Uh, or she will, you, you know, have some kind of 
foreknowledge of what they they might run into so there is that kind of um uh parallel there maybe more so than we were thinking before but but it just strikes me that what chakotay says is that he says i agree with dante sometimes it's better not to know what's in front of you now i'm not convinced that dante ever says that in the divine comedy that is certainly not the meaning of that section that chakotay is quoting that he's he's not saying that at all so again it seems like this weird situation where the voyager writers want to sort of appropriate dante but misrepresent him one way or another or kind of misrepresent what he's saying and just assume that the viewers will not notice essentially it's a strange example and then when you look at that episode shattered again you might think well what has this got to do with you know why bring up the divine comedy here the only thing that struck my mind about that episode is that you do have this kind of uh passing between not so much different realms of, of different spheres and so on, but different times. There is this kind of sense of Chakotay is this character who's kind of passing back and forth. And of course, he's guiding Janeway because he is the, the Virgil character who's almost, he's from the future. And in a sense, Virgil is not from Dante's future. He's from his past, but he is from his future in the sense that Dante is in hell and and in the other places as a sort of, as a living person who doesn't yet deserve to be there. So he's actually in an analogous situation to Janeway in that episode in that respect, in that he's, you, you know, he's in the afterlife without yet being dead, just as she's in the Delta Quadrant without yet having been banished there in a sense. So maybe there is a kind of strange connection between, you know, in this case, maybe again, it's Chakotay playing that Virgil character. Well, this is an interesting segue into talking about a door or a gateway or the path ahead. Um, Chakotay basically tells Janeway, they're just some doors we don't walk through. And of course, in in the Inferno, we have an explicit doorway. We have the gate of hell, right? <laughs> right, right there towards the beginning of the Inferno. Uh, and I, I love the passage. It's one of the most memorable passages for me. And for people who haven't read the Inferno, I'm, I'm going to just read the little passage so we can talk about it and then see what, what connection there is to Star Trek here. I'm sure we can find at least a couple. But um, they were standing in front of the gate of hell, and the gate of hell essentially reads, I am the way into the city of woe. I am the way to a forsaken people. I am the way into eternal sorrow. Sacred justice moved my architect. I was raised here by divine omnipotence, primordial love, and ultimate intellect. Only those elements time cannot wear were made before me, and beyond time I stand. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. You know what? As I was reading this, you know what literally just came to my mind? I can't believe I didn't make this connection until now. This is the guardian of forever. I was just thinking the exact same thing. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how I never made that connection before. It's it's strange, isn't it? And again, I suppose with the guardian forever, you've got time travel, and, and and maybe there is a kind of weird link between Star Trek using time travel in a way that is almost analogous to this kind of uh, mythic travel between realms. Do you know what I mean? In in this mm-hmm. in kind of Dante's imagination, that there is a kind of link there. But absolutely, I yeah, you know, I mean, it just hearing it, it certainly hadn't crossed my mind reading it either. But hearing you say those words out loud, that is the voice that kind of almost comes into your head, isn't it? It is. It's the voice of the Guardian of Forever. Whether that's intentional or not, who knows? But With Voyager, Voyager is, I think this is a, a really good connection. Voyager is standing before the gate of hell again and again and again. It's Seven of Nine saying, you know, I know the way ahead or Neelix saying, I know the way ahead. Uh, it's danger around every corner. It's the Kazon or at a certain point, it's the Borg. And it, it literally is like, oh my God, if we go through this, you know, rat's nest of Borg ships, we're all going to be assimilated but we have to get through it and uh you know seven of nine and janeway put their heads together and figure it out a lot of the time 
I don't know what to say about this. I, I was also thinking a bit about the cosmology of the Divine Comedy. You know, you've got this this impassable doorway. You get through the doorway. You go through um, you know, this kind of forbidden place you're not allowed to be. You get through that and off you are into, into paradise at a certain point. It sounds to me a lot like the galactic barrier in Star Trek V. You know, the galactic barrier being this impossibly dangerous place to go where angels fear to tread. And, you know, somehow Cybok is leading leading Kirk and company on a journey through the gate and they end up supposedly going to Shakari or, or the Vulcan version of Paradise. That sounds structurally analogous to the cosmology of the Divine Comedy to me when, when put in those terms. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we do have parallels as well i suppose the the fact that star trek 5 places shakari in a in a physical place if you know what i mean i mean elsewhere in star trek you might have references i mean i think there's an early voyager episode isn't there where harry kim ends up with those people who they sort of displace their not quite dead uh you know friends and relatives and they're up on an asteroid somewhere yeah exactly but there is this kind of weird resolution where there's some kind of um energy reading or something that there's there's some kind of scientific indication that there might be a kind of a kind of an afterlife or there might be something else beyond that and interestingly in the episode living witness it struck me watching it today janeway has a line where she says that ensign jatal who's the uh, woman that the doctor didn't save um is going on on her new journey basically going on another journey Mm -hmm. Uh, so she's kind of explicitly implying at least and whether janeway believes in that or not, I don't know. I, I sort of took it as maybe she's doing that out of respect for this person who's died's beliefs, possibly, or something like that. But it's, again, quite an un-Star Trek thing to say on one level, because it is, well, it's a sort of spiritual statement, I suppose, isn't it? Well, yeah, however you look at it. So there is that kind of interesting element of that. And obviously, in the Paradiso, you get this sense... I mean, the the, the Purgatorio, to me, it sort of felt like is more similar in some ways to the Inferno in that it's a lot of people suffering and maybe they're, they're suffer- they, they describe the difference as being they're, su- they're not just kind of going around in circles suffering eternally, they're kind of working through this process. It's almost like a kind of boot camp or like um, Tuvox Starfleet Academy training. It's like you're going you're gonna to really suffer, but at the end of it's it, it's you're going to come out. It's Aristotelian. You're getting all the, all the bad things that trained out of you. Uh, that's, exactly. that's exactly right. You know, you're getting rid of all your bad habits. and You're, you're going to be purged like Spock was purging, purging his emotions. Exactly. And that's the kind of, uh, that's what purgatory is about, is purging this kind of, it's very much like what the Vulcans are doing, essentially, to sort of ascend to uh, paradise. But then by the time you get to paradise, you do get, um, they're literally traveling in space. I mean, they go to the moon, they go to the sun, they go to the various planets the solar system do you know what i mean so the spheres of of heaven as dante sees it understandably from a kind of pre you you know without the benefit of kind of a modern astronomy and so on that is kind of how you get up to heaven essentially is like the moon is a stepping stone along the way so you do get this weird sense where they are almost in a sort of science fiction scenario where they're traveling to different bodies within our solar system i think that's compatible with star trek's techno utopianism you know the the stars you know in planets and the cosmology of of everything in star trek is a gateway to sort of human idealism right we find the best versions of ourselves by being out there amongst those things absolutely yeah and and i suppose that that's an interesting way of looking at it i suppose that that the earth is kind of that's your starting point but really things get better there is that sense in star trek isn't there that thing i mean maybe not all the way to the delta quadrant but things get better when you get away <laughs> from earth i mean if you think of captain picard growing up on the vineyard or whatever uh for him to realize 
himself and to kind of have a fulfilling and interesting life and do great noble things requires him to get off of earth and you, you know in family there's that temptation to take that job uh not only on earth but underwater and that's mm-hmm. seen as the real threat to his kind of noble well we can always do, i mean we can always do that i mean uh at every dark period like dante in the in the divine comedy in every dark period you can keep pushing forward or you can tuck tail and run he's tempted to tuck tail and run it takes virgil coming to him and saying no we're going forward and you know no matter how scary it is and i think at every stage in life there's a tendency to go oh i better i better back off i need to need to look backwards rather than looking forwards Uh, that's and that's like the worst thing you can do in life right i don't know Uh, so you you mentioned something about about we're talking about the cosmology of the divine comedy and you mentioned that you think it takes place primarily in the afterlife and i found this really not clear at all and i'm curious what your take on is i can imagine three different interpretations of what's going on inside the divine comedy one is that it's a literal physical place right he's literally in a dark wood somewhere virgil comes along and there's a a physical entryway into hell somewhere um it could be a dream state you know is he is he's uh you know he falls asleep one night and he you know encounters virgil in a dream and all of the divine comedy is in some sort of dream state um, or it could be some sort of literal afterlife where most of the infernos, and maybe it's, maybe it's not Dante's afterlife. Maybe it's everyone else's afterlife. All the people in, you know, hell and purgatory and, and paradise. Maybe, maybe it's a literal afterlife there, but, um, but you mentioned it takes place primarily in the afterlife. And I always pictured it maybe a little more in the sense of like a dream or a vision, something along the line of, um, you know, John's vision in the book of revelation or something like that, where it's, uh, you know, it's not, it's not literally in the afterlife or is it? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> What's the right way to read the divine comedy as a whole, you know? That is an interesting question. Do you take it? Li- I mean, I took it fairly literally, but I take, I take Star Trek literally and I know that it's not real. I mean, do you, do you know what I mean? So I suppose mm-hmm. obviously the narrator, you know, Dante in quote marks uh, of the divine comedy who may or may not be precisely the same as the real man Dante who was putting quill to paper is claiming that he went to all these places and met all these people and saw all these things. Obviously we know that he didn't, if we're, you know, broadly speaking, <laughs> kind of rational. Uh, we don't, we don't genuinely believe that Dante in some was, you know, literally beamed down to hell and, and guided around by Virgil. So I suppose there's a question like what, on what level do you allegorically read the story? But to me, the story on its own terms, yeah, I did take it that that this is what's happening in this in this story we sort of accept and whatever the reason for it because it's i think it's beatrice that has kind of kicked it all off isn't it there's this sense that dante was in this was metaphorically in a dark wood he was in a very difficult time uh he was in a state of despair i think he says at one point i mean there's this sort of mm-hmm. implication that he might have uh you know cause there's a lot of talk about suicides in the inferno and so on that he was kind of in a really seriously dark situation and it's beatrice who's kind of intervened i think she sent virgil she sends virgil very much like one of the prophets Mm -hmm. you know in ds9 intervening in cisco's life and that somehow almost like a kind of like a christmas carol for scrooge you know he gets his three ghosts dante gets his three you know realms whatever you call them that that's gonna somehow he's going on a journey he's going on his sort of um you know, his kind of hero's journey in a sense, and he's going to come out of it changed by seeing all of this and by the experience. And then he's going to go back to his real life and not be metaphorically in a dark wood anymore. So I suppose there's that kind of sense of it. So you could say, yeah, is it is it all to be understood as a vision? I think it's very tricky with that kind of allegorical writing, particularly from that kind of period, because 
you know, you mentioned earlier on the kind of numerology and all these kind of structural mm -hmm. um, aspects of it, the way that everything is kind of constructed and composed is very artful and very clever. Uh, it's almost like a kind of game in a sense. So it's very different to a sort of realist novel where you where you say, you know, okay, this is as, as realist, you know, we take this as completely straight up. We believe everything that, that we're told. The narrator is, is just relating accurately exactly what happened thing by thing by thing. But I suppose it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I thought you were going to say when you say afterlife, it's a curious concept. So we tend to think of the afterlife as something that happens after life. Obviously, it's like it's, a, it's located in time for the individual as well as in place. Whereas the way Dante describes it, it's very much these are places. And not only are they places where there's a geography and there's a kind of journey, you know, it's mm -hmm. almost like you think of something like the Lord of the Rings. It's almost like a kind of, you, you know, there is a kind of topography to it all. It, quite a lot of detail that he goes into. So it doesn't feel so much like what we might think of as an afterlife. As an afterlife is kind of where you go when you die in some sort of vague, wishy-washy sense. This is like, this sort of feels like an entire constructed place that you can visit and you can explore and that, you know, you have to know the route from A to B. And this is this bit you have to climb on the back of the weird monster. And this bit you have to go through this. Uh, process in order to get to the next stage and so on. It, it, it does feel very, um, it's, it's not like when people say the afterlife and they think of heaven as this kind of cloudy, uh, sort of vague space or a kind of dreamlike space where things just sort of magically, like in the nexus, the nexus is very kind of, um, you know, you walk out of one room and into somewhere completely different and it's all a bit magical. This is a very, very unmagical in that sense, afterlife, in that it feels very concrete. It feels very real. It's like another, it is like a, another constructed world. It is like a sort of fantasy world almost. Yeah, I guess that's, that's the heart of my question. It feels so concrete that you could plausibly say that, you know, Dante wakes up and he's, you know, and doesn't know how he got there, but he's in a very physical place. You know, he's not in a dreamlike state. He's, he's in a wood and it's got all these qualities that aren't ephemeral. They're tangible qualities <laughs> and all, and the inferno in particular feels very tangible and visceral and real and there's a like i said there's a geography and a topography to it i guess i don't have any real deep th anything deep to say about this i just always found it interesting that the the kind of structural numerology that he gets that he develops in in la vita nuova encountering beatrice three times nine years apart each wow okay and these numbers are significant you've got three being the number of the trinity in christianity nine you know you've got nine being you know right next to completion and so there's he, he has this kind of um I don't know, almost mystical associations with these numbers. These are significant structural elements for him <laughs> and that he, 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 you know, takes them to heart because of, because of Beatrice. And he, he incorporates all of those into the divine comedy, you know, three realms, nine circles of hell and these numbers and these structural elements keep coming up. One thing I love about the edition that I've got is there, there are several maps of, of hell in, inside, inside the inferno. Very kind of Lord of the Rings. You know, yeah, exactly, it is. Exactly it, as you. And funnily enough, you could say Levita Nuova is the Hobbit to, you know, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> the Divine Comedy's Lord <laughs> of the Rings, in a sense. <laughs> Sets up the characters in a much more kind of modest, you know, less dramatic way. What I'm struggling with is how to make the connection to Star Trek. You know, I, we could sit and talk about the Divine Comedy all day, but, you know, what how are these these elements metaphors that that are relevant to to talking about star trek um you know a, a gate that we have to get beyond where all these terrible things are happening the notion of a journey being guided through the journey you know on the one hand it feels like these connections aren't very deep on the other hand they're so richly metaphorical for so many things in in actual life and in star trek i keep coming back to them because they they're such good analogies for all of us in in different stages of our life they're good analogies for things we see in star trek but i guess fundamentally i go 
I can't help but ask this question, like, what's the big takeaway? At the end of the Divine Comedy, what should the big takeaway be? And same thing with Star Trek. What's the big takeaway from all of Star Trek? And what's the big takeaway between the two? What what should we take away from the Divine Comedy when we're talking about Star Trek? I struggle to get the big idea out of, out of those things. Like, I enjoy being on a journey through the Divine Comedy. I like the journey of Star Trek, but the philosopher in me is always like, so what's the point? What's the big takeaway? <laughs> and and that's where, that's where I struggle. I guess you could say they are both offering kind of moral examples one way or another. I mean, Star Trek offers moral examples of, you know, good people doing, you know, good captains, making noble decisions and kind of making things better. Or making bad decisions sometimes. Failing. Or making bad mm-hmm. decisions sometimes. I know, but I mean, like, generally speaking, you could say Star Trek has a kind of moral core that is quite positive. Do you know what I mean? That's one of the things that people love about Star Trek. Uh, and equally, you could say the Divine Comedy, it, you know, it shows the consequences of people behaving badly or awful for them. It shows, you know, increasingly towards going into the Paradiso and so on. People kind of, who are more like the kind of Starfleet types who are doing their best and doing the right thing and doing noble things and self-sacrificing and so on. So you could say it has a kind, there's a kind of moral universe that they inhabit that, that there's some kind of, um, link between them. I, I think more broadly, the, these themes, as you say, of going on a journey of this kind of, of the journey without mirroring the journey within. I mean, you get that in all good things, don't you? You know, Q saying to Picard, you, you know, this this uh, is not about exploring space and uh, studying nebula and, and this kind of thing. This is about a kind of spiritual inward journey. You could say that's exactly what's going on for Dante's, you know. Is it really about mm-hmm. this kind of uh, literal journey through these realms or is it about you know, what is the, to, to, if you, when you take from Voyager, you know, to the journey, what is, what is the journey? Is the journey literally just the, from A to B, or is the journey something more significant, almost kind of spiritual, more kind of, um, you, you know, what does that represent for the people that have gone through it? And what does that experience represent for them? And, and I think you could say with Star Trek, actually, I mean, you, you know, you're talking about this question of, is this literally happening? You know, on what level of reality is this taking place? Well, we get that in Star Trek all the time with, you know, holodecks, with illusions, with false uh, memories being projected. Uh, I mean, Star Trek constantly gives us situations where people are in a situation that feels real, but may not be, or may not be entirely real, or in some cases where there's actually a sort of irresolvable ambiguity about whether that situation is is real or not. I mean, if you think of something like Barge of the Dead, which has a lot of um, similarities, I think, to the Inferno, for obvious reasons, uh, there's also that kind of fundamental thing that in that episode, there's no concrete answer to, did Balana go to the Klingon afterlife? Or did she just have a vision and imagined it all in her head? And, and the show will not really answer that question. This is a fundamental problem in all of uh, Judeo-Christian theology, I think, right? Which parts are literal? Because, you know, I mean, people who are genuine believers think that certain things are real. God is real. Heaven's real. You know, these are, these are literal, these are, these are concepts that have that, that, um, and terms and vocabulary and, and lessons that relate to something directly. Like they point to something, (laughs) they don't point to something here, but they're real, right? They're not purely allegorical, right? There's a literal component to them for people who genuinely believe. And yet certain things are clearly allegories or clearly stories or clearly metaphors or whatever. And it's like, it's like a line drawing problem, which, which, what goes in what category, which parts are literal and which parts are, you know, just allegories or stories and not meant to be taken literally. It's hard with a divine comedy because as Dante, he incorporates um, so much what I would call sort of uh, by the book orthodoxy, you know, Christianity into the Divine Comedy. But he's also delving; he's also combining all of Greek and Roman mythology into it as well, uh, at least in the Inferno. 
um, to a lesser extent later in the Divine Comedy. Uh, but it, it's a really interesting question, like which parts did Dante mean to be taken literally given his theology and which parts are allegorical and meant to be, you know, in, interpreted psychologically or morally or, or otherwise. With Star Trek, it's an interesting question because Star Trek is supposed to take place in our future, a plausible, concrete future that, that humankind has. It's not, it has these al- allegorical elements, but it's a very literal interpretation of, of what our, what our future could be. And I think you could say the same thing in the Divine Comedy. You know, Dante is looking forward, you know, halfway through life's journey going, okay, in 40 years, I'll be in the ground. What comes after if you, you know, given his theology, certain parts, parts of the divine comedy are supposed to be literal, I think, right? If you literally believe in a heaven and a hell and a purgatory, if you're a, uh, in a, a good Italian Catholic of the 14th century, you know, those are things that you believe in literally. They're not purely metaphors. Um and of course, I don't pretend to be a 14th century Italian and know which is which is supposed to be what. But I think it, it's not easy to tell which which parts are literal and which parts are metaphorical. And um, it's funny you mentioned um, Barge of the Dead because that's that's one of the obvious connections I had to make with Voyager. Like we get an ex- an explicit vision of the Klingon afterlife in the form of Klingon Hell or Barge of the Dead, the journey to Hell. Just like we have a River Styx and uh, Karen, you know, f- the boatman you know, ferrying people over the River Styx in the Inferno. It's a it's an explicit connection to to the Divine Comedy. And you even have those kind of monsters in the Styx because in the Divine Comedy there are some of the people who've been you know their punishment in Hell, hell is they've been turned into these kind of slimy monsters and you have them in the voyager episode as well i can't remember what they call it they're almost like the sirens i suppose there but they kind of lure people off the barge and then devour them i mean it's very mm-hmm. much um I, I suppose it does feel very much more like a kind of classical vision of hell in some ways maybe that's what we associate with it. it it struck me when you were saying that about you know what what do what do people believe what do modern people believe i read something once uh which i thought was kind of interesting which said when when they do surveys when they poll people and they say you know do you believe in heaven or not x number of people will say yes and when they say do you believe in hell or not a very different number of people say yes and a lot of people will say they believe in heaven but not hell interestingly uh, and whether that's just kind of you know kind of self-motivated or not who knows but i I suppose it is interesting that um that episode it does take balana into this kind of afterlife and it is very much realized in a similar way to that kind of quite grotesque um i mean you you know you do literally have the kind of gates of hell opening at one point um Mm -hmm. you could imagine them having you know, abandon hope all you who enter here, kind of plastered across them in Klingon almost. Um, and <laughs> that would be awesome. Kind of <laughs> someone needs to translate that <laughs> who knows, Someone should now. have done that. They should have done that. Yeah, that would have been a nice kind of Easter egg for the, for the fans. But there's also an interesting moment um, in that episode where there's this kind of question, there's this question mark about whether she's really gone to the afterlife or not, whether it's just a vision or not. There's also this kind of question about whether the fact that she's seen her mother there means that her mother in reality has died. And is this kind of giving her, giving Belana sort of almost kind of privileged information about an aspect of reality that she's not familiar with? You know, because obviously she's far away. She doesn't know whether her mother's alive or dead. Mm-hmm. And seeing her there, she's like, oh my God, my mother must have died, you know, in the in the real world, essentially, which is the world that we're living in most of the time. Doesn't this happen to Dante in the in the Divine Comedy? He comes across people that he thinks are living, but are actually in, in hell? Well, this is what I was going to say. There's this very interesting connection that he inadvertently makes uh, a man think that his son has died because he, mm-hmm. because the man says something about not, not knowing what his son's doing kind of up in the real world or whatever. 
whatever. Right. And Dante has this kind of very intense reaction and doesn't say anything. And the man deduces from this look that he gives that it must mean that his son has died. And actually what Dante is is shocked by is the idea that the people in hell might not know what's happening in, in the real world to the extent they, that if someone died, they wouldn't they wouldn't be down there. They wouldn't have seen them or whatever. And so it has to be sort of explained to him that actually, you, you know, they they aren't necessarily that aware of what's going on in the real world. So there is, again, that sort of weird link of the uncertainty of, you, you know, is the, the person... It's a slightly different way that it plays out, but that kind of idea that that there can be some uncertainty. Is someone really there or not? Is someone really dead or not? And again, in, in the Divine Comedy, there's also a section where they talk about people who are there in hell before they've died because they've kind of spiritually died. And there's this weird idea that once they reach a certain kind of moral crisis point in their lives, a, de- a sort of demon will possess their body and just finish their life off for them until their allotted time is up, <laughs> while their soul can kind of be you know, beamed down ahead of time, basically, to begin the, the torture in hell. Um, so there's that weird, again, which, which again feels very kind of sci-fi in some ways of these it's sort of body snatchers almost, isn't it? But, you, you, you know, the body is still going around, but someone else is kind of pulling the strings. And meanwhile, the, the person appears to be in two places at once. I know I keep veering back towards Dante and maybe not towards Star Trek, but um, as I think through, again, I just wonder how intentional this kind of thing is. Like, I can imagine if you are putting myself in Dante's theology and Dante's cosmology, if you are in uh, the Paradiso, if you're closer to having the God's eye standpoint, you're more likely to be to have these godlike qualities like omniscience, knowing everything going on in the physical world, right? Whereas if you're in hell, you're you're more removed from that. You're in a darker place. You don't have you 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 have the opposite of a God's eye perspective. So of course, no one in hell knows what's going on in the in the physical world because you don't have that kind of um, outside. Um, you know, trans-dimensional perspective on on all of physical cosmology like you would if you were in, in paradise. That's a good point, yes. And we get that in Star Trek to some extent as well. We get that sense that... It, oh, the Q have that. The Q have that kind of well, yeah. that omniscient, you know, God's eye standpoint on all of physical creation, right? You know, that's... The, the Q are godlike in that quality. They have omniscience and not, they're omnipotent and they, they have... The, they're trans-dimensional in a way. They can pop in pop in and out of, uh, of, of physical reality in one place and show up somewhere else. And But they see all of the cosmos as a whole, I think, as I understand the Q, right? Um, that's not what's going on in the Inferno, right? The 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 people that are that are in hell in the Inferno don't have that Q, Q-like perspective. They don't, no. And the Q are interesting because I suppose, of course, the Q continuum, again, is a, a realm that can be kind of explored and that you need a guide to explain it to you mm-hmm. and that can kind Metaphorically, of manifest yeah. itself. That is very, exactly, is very allegorical and is very kind mm-hmm. of... Um, there's this, again, this sort of weird question, is this literally, and they have that discussion in that episode, don't they? You know, it, it, is this literally the Q continuum? And they're like, no, no, of course not. This is just, you know, a way of representing it to you. So again, there's that sort of idea of, uh, you know, the kind of allegory going on literally around you that you that you can live that an allegory isn't just something that you can read or that can be produced as a work of art but that you can kind of experience it somehow as a, as a reality, recognizing that it is not base reality. This is one of the truly medieval aspects of Dante's view. If he's saying that, um, you know, the closer you are to God, the more likely you are to have this God's like perspective on thing or what we're calling a Q like perspective on thing in Star Trek. 
But, um, you know, in medieval theology, you get kind of a perfect being theology where God is the most perfect being, right? And everything else that's in creation is less perfect. We have some goodness, but we're not omnibenevolent. We have some knowledge, but we're not omniscient. We have some power and ability to do things, but we're not omnipotent, right? That's that's an essential part of medieval philosophy and theology, you know, a la um, St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas, um, maybe St. Anselm too. In order, I guess what I'm saying is in order to understand those concepts, then you have to uh, recognize that we have some understanding, but we can't have that kind of God-like omniscience, that perfect understanding that a truly divine being would have. So, hence the role of metaphor and allegory. And it's just those things are totally compatible with our sort of finite role as a created being that is to some extent has all the properties that God has in Christian theology, but to a lower degree, right? That, that notion of degrees and hierarchy is an essential part of, of, of medieval, you know, philosophy and and theology and maybe cosmology too. And that's, what's going on in that episode uh, of Voyager when we, or a couple of episodes of Voyager, when we see the Q continuum, you know, Q says, you know, your puny little finite minds can't understand the totality of the Q continuum. So I'm presenting it to you in a way that you can understand. It's not that you can't understand it. You just have to understand it metaphorically or allegorically or some other, some other way. But all, all of that is strikes me is a very medieval way of thinking about about human reason as it relates to the divine perspective. Well, that is an interesting way of looking at it, for sure. And and I think also this kind of theme, I suppose, of... I mean, maybe Chakotay has hit on something when he he, he talks about Dante as representing the, the kind of uncertainty of the dark wood as not so much being about emotional turmoil and so on, but the idea of not seeing the path ahead and not knowing what's ahead of you and that is certainly a theme that comes up in star trek again and again is kind of if you knew more about your future would it affect the the decisions that you make today which is very much what's going on in that episode shattered where uh janeway is kind of saying well if i i've you know i've seen all these glimpses of the future i'm going to avoid getting stranded in the delta quadrant i'm not going to take this path and he sort of talks her round in a way and there's this whole element in that episode of course of the temporal prime directive and the idea that you can't tell people what's in their future because it might affect their Mm -hmm. decisions now you could say for dante by writing this you know committing many years to this this huge work all about the afterlife he is almost giving himself and others a glimpse at their future because it is kind of saying you know if you if you do this uh this is what's going to come uh, further down the line, whereas if you behave in this way, then your future is going to look very differently. So there is this kind of weird sense where, although, as I say, it's not a time travel story, there's a kind of awareness that this is, that, like you said, the fact that he's in this crisis because he's having this kind of midlife moment, there is a real awareness that, and certainly from our perspective, you know, 700 years later, obviously, if, if that if those places exist, then he's in one of them, uh, <laughs> you know, whichever one of them it might be. When I read the Divine Comedy when I was younger, I read it largely, I think, from an emotional standpoint. You know, I was in a, a dark place emotionally at some point and the Divine Comedy spoke to me and so on. Now I kind of go, OK, I'm 40. I'm literally midway through life's journey like Dante in, in the Divine Comedy. And, you know, maybe the more literal aspects appeal to me now. Um, you know what it calls to mind as you were talking? It calls to mind... Uh, I can't remember the episode name, but it's the episode of Discovery in season two when Pike gets a glimpse of his own future being in a wheelchair and having gone through a disaster. And he has a choice to make. He can either kind of, you know, choose to embrace the inevitability of that and plow forward, or he can kind of tuck tail and run and try to change it. And um, it's there's there's a 
a sense in which you just have to embrace your own destiny and move forward. And for me, I don't know, it sounds like super, super like naively inspirational, like just plow forward through it all, move forward in life, embrace your destiny, no matter what you're doing, just keep moving forward. And I, I think that's a, that's a, an important lesson in life. It really is. Like I know people that have turned their back on life, you know, they've become depressed or they committed suicide or fill in the blank. They've given up. They don't see possibilities and it's a terrible place to be. Um, that's not what you want life to be like. Life should have this forward momentum to it. And Star Trek is really consistent about this. Like whatever danger there is, you go for it, go through it. If you have a galactic barrier, you go through it. If you, uh, if there's a dark unknown, uh, you know, we don't know what's in the nebula, we go in it anyway. And, uh, and through and through Star Trek is like, keep pushing forward. Don't worry about the danger. Bad things might happen along the way, but it's worth the risk to keep pushing forward. And, um, I don't know. It's, is that a naive point or is that a really deep point? Sometimes it feels really naive and simplistic and sometimes it feels like that's the entire point. I think we could say plausibly that that is a, a, a kind of moral avoid. I mean, you, you know, you think of what a, I mean, Captain Picard had a, a very well-known catchphrase, you know, with make it so. Janeway, less, uh, less of a catchphrase, but one of the phrases that you might associate with her is do it. That's it, isn't it? That's what she says. She says, do it. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. You know, all that stuff you were saying was making me think of, you know, Nike, just do it. That's the kind of, that, that's their slogan, isn't it? And that is basically Janeway's slogan as well. And I think you could say in some ways, uh, that does fit the kind of mood and the ethos of Voyager, uh, through those seven years. Uh, and I guess they did do it and, you know, <laughs> they got home in the end, they got to the end of their journey, but it is absolutely, it's, I, I think that, I mean, it does sound very basic, but it is certainly one of the things that kind of is at the heart of Star Trek. You, you don't turn around and go home. You don't, you, you know, you push forward. That's, that's what, um, you know, be sitting in that chair is all about, isn't it? But what exactly makes it worthwhile? Like, you know, because the journey just keeps going on in Star Trek. It's not like there's an end point. Time goes on and space is endless. And the human adventure is just beginning. It's not teleological in the way that the Divine Comedy is, right? The Divine Comedy, uh, teleological in the sense of having a goal or a purpose or an end point, right? For Dante, the end of the journey, not literally in the course of the Divine Comedy, but literally in the sense of in the afterlife in Christian theology, there's an end point, right? <laughs> you go to paradise and... That's in some sense the goal. It's the end, right? Your your journey of life and the journey of the afterlife concludes at that point, essentially, and you commune with the divine in some eternal sense that's supposed to be eternally blissful. Star Trek isn't like that, though, right? Star Trek has this sense that there's there's just ongoing, endless forward momentum. There's always more unknown, always a new frontier. Space is the final frontier. There's always um, always a new challenge to get through. But there's no there's no real end point to it in the way that there is for the Divine Comedy. No, I think that's right. Absolutely. Although you could say that Voyager, of all the series, it has it is a oh yeah, you have to get home. Voyager is the show with a teleological intent, if you know what I mean, more than any of the others. Insofar as that first episode sets up, and you could say you know DS Nine sets up an end point, which is Bajor is going to be admitted to the Federation, and then it never mm -hmm. even achieves that. <laughs> so you know, so much other stuff happens that you almost forget that that's what that show ostensibly was about but voyage absolutely sets an end point on day one well that turns that turns star trek okay again if there's a cosmology to the divine comedy there's a cosmology to star trek right star trek most of star trek says the journey is endless right you just keep pushing outward into the frontier voyager kind of turns that on its head and says the goal isn't to keep pushing forward paradise is being back home on earth in what is essentially the 24th century version of paradise <laughs> like i i don't know um 
and I'm trying to think who is the person that that speaks out against this the most. Tom Paris says, "I am home, Harry." When Harry says, "I just want to get home," <laughs> at some point he says, "You know, I'm a father and a husband, and I, Voyager is my home. I don't need to get back home to the Alpha Quadrant to be to be happier, you know, fulfill my my purpose in life. I don't really want to go home." And Harry's the one going, "We have to get home. We have to get home. We have to get home." Even Captain Janeway's like, "We have to get home. We have to get home. Going to get get my crew home." That doesn't that just completely invert star trek cosmology where where you know earth or the alpha quadrant becomes the locus of creation and the you know it, it's analogous to paradise in in the divine comedy that's that's backwards from most of star trek i think it is absolutely it's it's kind of flipped on its head but i suppose maybe you're right maybe the the kind of moral there is that it almost doesn't matter whether they get home or not i mean maybe the really bold decision would have been not to send them home you, you know in that last episode and leave them and you know who knows 20 odd years down the line now people would be saying you know just as we're bringing back Picard bring back Cisco bring back you know let's find out what Voyager's doing 20 years 20 years further along you know I mean that would almost be a, have been a way of kind of solidifying that idea somehow as uh, that that is the is ultimately the the truth that they've uncovered one way or another but obviously at the same time the narrative sort of requires them for it to be satisfying as a whole, it does sort of require them to get back. And, you know, you could say that Voyager is constrained by that structural um, element, which is established on day one, just the same way as the these works by Dante are constrained by, you know, the numerology or the, you know, uh, it's, it's all, you know, this thing has to happen exactly halfway through and there have to be exactly this many stanzas on this side and this many stanzas on that side. And, you know, it's, it's all very kind of symmetrical. I mean, you know, the Divine Comedy is these three uh, sort of equally weighted books in a sense you you know it's all very with a pretty rigid structure within them it's extremely rigid structure yeah yeah and yet within that is all of this kind of very strange mysterious wonderful otherworldly mystery and you know the two can exist side by side to some extent so i do have a couple of tidbits that i found online that are at least worth mentioning they're just tidbits but they're just little dante connections inside star trek Apparently, in the episode Devil's Do in TNG, a sculpture of Dante was placed in the set of A Christmas Carol when Data performed the play. Amazing. <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense. It does, yep. <laughs> Just a little nod. And also, in the shooting script for the motion picture, Spock... And I don't know if they filmed this. I couldn't figure this out or not. I don't I don't remember it in the deleted scenes I saw, but maybe some film exists of it somewhere. Spock quotes Dante in describing what V'ger is seeking from its creator. Quote, the divine restlessness of the human spirit, which was cut from the film. So we don't actually have that, but maybe maybe a little clip of it exists in the archive somewhere that someone can someone can dig up. But those are two other little Dante connections. Can you think of any other Dante connections inside Star Trek? Those are Two I wasn't aware of that it was fun to fun to find. Well, nothing springs to mind for me necessarily, but I would be very interested if any of our listeners have anything uh, that 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 comes to mind for them. Oh, one other one actually, one very small one that I did love is that there's a sequence in I guess it's in the parodies. Anyway, it's a sequence between Dante and Beatrice where they basically play out exactly what happens in the next gen episode attached, where they start realizing that they can hear each other's thoughts. It's something to do with the oh, spiritual connection between them. So there you go. There's, there's my little uh, tidbit. But I mean, there, there are certainly other, you know, there are other things in there that kind of tie into Star Trek one way or another. I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the Garden of Eden. They, there's also some discussion of the River Lethe, which obviously plays into the Discovery episode of that name. I mean, I think there are lots of things that we could see 
but maybe they're more just links to kind of classical mythology that are playing out in the Divine Comedy rather than anything that's kind of unique to Dante's take on it. And that's the thing I, have, I find so interesting about the Divine Comedy. I mean, it's on the one hand, it's very orthodox in its overall structure. And on the other hand, it's also deeply intertwined with classical Greek and Roman mythology, which is pretty heretical from an orthodox Christianity standpoint. And he's weaving all these together and... um uh, I almost uh, part of me wonders how he could get away with it, and he, of course maybe he wasn't. He was exiled, right? <laughs> but um, uh, there's there's a deep orthodoxy to it, despite its its uh, incorporation of classical mythology. But you know, I guess for me, um, you know, I'm like I said, I'm 41 now, so I'm at the age Dante is supposed to be, give or take, when he when he wrote the Divine Comedy, halfway through the journey. That's how I think. That's how I think of life up at this point. All everything up till now is half, you know, part one of the journey, and for me, part two is still ahead. So I'm looking for big takeaways. Like, what's the what's the point in the next 40 years? I'd, I'd love to hear Dante's thoughts. Like 20 years after the Divine Comedy, what does he take away from having experienced and written something like the divine comedy just like we see captain kirk saying you know here after the five-year mission after he's lost the enterprise after all this stuff happens you know he gets to get back in the saddle one more time again and again and again throughout the star trek movies and same thing with captain picard you know he's all of tng was part one of the journey and now he's older 20 years later going uh 25 years later however many years it's been saying, uh, okay, time to get back in the saddle in some way. What, what is it all? And I guess it's, there's a deeper question, like not just what do you do? Like what, what is part two of the journey, but like, what does the first part mean? Right. For me, it raises these deep questions of meaning. What's the point of everything Dante went through before he wrote the divine comedy? And how do you view that after the experience, of the divine comedy, you know, 20 years later or in the second half of the journey? What's the point of everything Captain Picard did in, in, in the first half, first half or two thirds of his life, you know, culminating in what we see in TNG? And what's the meaning of all of that looking back later in life? Um, when time is the, when the, uh, inevitability of time seems more clear, like, you know, you're at the tail end looking backwards and, you know, you've got a, a very finite amount of time left. And, um, even in the 24th century, when life is supposed to be what, 140 years or whatever, whatever Dr. McCoy lives to, um, that's not anywhere near a Q like godlike perspective on time. So again, no answer to that question, but cause I'm right on the cusp, right, right like Dante was. But for me, it raises all these questions of like, what is the point of the journey in the second half of the journey? Well, that is an interesting question. I suppose Star Trek has historically taken a lot of interest in that. And we are going to see that again with the Picard show. We are going to get, get a kind of second glimpse at, at not just Picard, but the next generation crew more generally to some extent. I think, unfortunately, the answer to your question, you, you know, what was Dante doing 20 years after writing the Divine Comedy is he was living it because he died only a year <laughs> after he finished it. <laughs> oh, is, is that true? I, yeah, I, I guess I knew that at one point. So that's the interesting thing is actually he wrote it right at the very, well, I mean, I think it took a long time, but it was, uh, I think, published I think about a year before he died, maybe. So it was kind of something that the the product of, of a great period of time, but it's not like he wrote it at the age of 35. He wrote it towards the end of his life and he didn't unfortunately make it to 70. I, I think he died, obviously, maybe about 50, something like that, which is probably not bad for that uh, period in time. But I suppose that's the... So there is no second act in that sense, except that the story itself kind of, you, you, you know, because, as I say, by showing us something of his it shows us all of his potential futures i suppose if you, if you believe in in the reality of that world as depicted he is going to end up somewhere there um and the real mystery is what's he going to do you know as picard says in generations what do we do 
you know, with the time that we have, essentially, what's what's he going to do with the rest of his life? That and where's that going to? Where's he? You know, when he beams down, what what's the point that he's beaming down or up into going to be? So. To me, the fact that Dante starts with the phrase midway in our life's journey, I went astray from the straight, like there, there's either that's a total accident, like uh, an autobiographical contingent, not necessary fact of his life that halfway through life's journey about that age is when he happened to write this and when he happened to whatever. Or there's some deeper meaning to it, like so many things in the Divine Comedy have. Is it just as simple as a midlife crisis, or is there some deeper hermeneutical meaning going on? Is it, you know, what what's the point of this taking place halfway through Dante's life's journey? And um, I don't know. It's, I, I I don't know why I keep coming to that now. Maybe it's just because I'm I'm at that age that age now. But that's the passage I keep coming back to. Like halfway through life's journey, this is what's happening. And is it not halfway through? Our life's journey. That's why I've often seen it translated rather than my life's journey, which sort of suggests it's not so much that it's exactly. And I suppose to be fair, you know, you say you feel that you're that. I mean, I could say the same thing. We don't know. You know, either of us could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Right. I could be 99.9% of the way through, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but I suppose by saying halfway through our life's journey, it's kind of an assumption that there's an expectation at least that that's what he was feeling at the time he was in that kind of and that's what a midlife crisis is i suppose isn't it? it's, it's an expectation that you think you're probably at the halfway point and obviously actually you're if that's the case you're lucky in a way because some people that turns out not to be the case actually here we go i have a translator's note on this notion of midway the translator john chiardi in the version i love says midway in our life's journey the biblical lifespan is three score years and ten the action opens in dante's 35th year or ad 1300 there we go well whatever the the answer to that question um i suppose dante didn't have the benefit of uh you know someone breaking the temporal prime directive to tell him <laughs> exactly how long he was going to live uh whether they'd be willing to or not but we are most certainly uh more than midway through our podcast journey in fact i think we've pretty much uh reached the apotheosis of this conversation um <laughs> we're, we're in paradise as it were so um before we go zachary do you want to uh let our listeners know where they can find you elsewhere on the trek of network and if they want to contact you on social media what's the best way to find you there as well absolutely you can find me hosting two podcasts on the trek fm network one is to the journey trek fm show dedicated to star trek voyager and you can also find me on metatrex a show dedicated to star trek and philosophy uh because in another time frame another part of my life first part of the journey i was a philosophy teacher interestingly enough i am again duncan by the way i'm teaching philosophy again i don't know if you had seen that on social media or not there you go it's Come full circle. Uh, so my students get to hear about all, all this stuff, Dante and philosophy included, and Star Trek from time to time. Uh, if you want to find me on Twitter, you can find me there. My handle is just my name, at Zachary Fruling. It's Zachary, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y, Fruling, F-R-U-H-L-I-N-G. Well, thank you, Zachary, so much for joining me uh, once again. It's been great having you back on the show. And as I say, great to have you as a, a guide to this uh, rather complex uh, world of, of Dante and his remarkable works and to... Take a look at how they relate to Star Trek. Well, have me back again, and we will take the conversation even deeper, hopefully not into a deeper circle of hell. <laughs> That's at least to be hoped for. But the circles of hell are not the only thing that we've been talking about on Trek of M this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. I knew from the beginning it was going to be a very large and complicated undertaking. I was asked by the editor and the licensor to come up with a storyline 
for Picard that would deal with the fallout of what I unleashed in my novel Section 31 Control, in which Section 31's crimes, and in fact its very existence, are publicly exposed to the Federation at large as well as its interstellar neighbors. Earl Grey. Troy looks down at her empty stomach. (laughs) (laughs) Let me do this part. I'm going to act it. Okay. Troy looks down at her empty stomach and frowns telepathically. (laughs) Oh, I wish. Listeners, you couldn't see it, but I did that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) LaForge. Computer, locate a big thing of chips. (laughs) To the journey! What about the basics, planet? That planet's not bad. There's a lot of wide open spaces. You just have to avoid going in the caves. Yeah. I mean, anthropologically speaking. No spelunking on that planet. You can spelunk on the <laughs> board unicomplex, un- un- but you can't spelunk on that planet. No. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. That he said. <laughs> he was taking he- the new body out for a ride? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> I mean, it was a great line. It just doesn't really fit what really happened like he wasn't out there dating other people you know like, well he was trying to figure out who this new Colbert was you know no i know but it, I, it was I like funny it was lighthearted. It, right it just didn't it just doesn't fit what he actually did and that's what else is happening on trek.fm check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an apple user Be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash TrekFM, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash TrekFM to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at MissAmyNelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at MC and Tony at at AJBlackWriter. You're blended all right.